Let's open our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. I was never a big fan of the uh, Beatles, although you can't help but know a lot of their music. Uh, can't buy me love, can't buy me love. I, I don't know the rest of the words, that's all I can know. Uh, you Beatle fans can uh, fill in the rest. Can't buy God either. You can't buy God, and that's one of the problems that... Uh, our, our person of interest in this passage wants to do. He wants to purchase the power of God, and that just can't be done. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I'll read chapter 8, verses 1 through 25 this morning. Heavenly Father, come upon us this morning, that our eyes would be open to your word, what it is that we need to know, and how we should live because of the truth that is laid before us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 25. And Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's referring back to Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women, he would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. And the multitudes, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. Now, just as an aside, you remember Philip was not an apostle. He was one of the seven chosen. It seems that he and Stephen were able to do these signs and wonders that the apostles were able to do, yet they were not apostles. Verse 7. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was much rejoicing in that city. Now there was a certain man named Simon, who formerly was practicing magic in the city, and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts." But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit." For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money, saying, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. 
You have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. But Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me yourselves, so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. It's a great section here, and we're challenged in a variety of ways today. But, but as we start, we see that there is opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. There will always be opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ until he re- his return. There has always been. There always will be. We should get used to it. And that opposition mainly comes from Satan. It is satanic opposition. Now, I have not personally come in contact with some of the classic manifestations of um, demonic uh, possession or anything like that. But I have friends who have, and I believe they're first-person accounts, as they have faced these things themselves. And they range from Ouija boards flying across the room and embedding themselves into concrete walls to the voice of a sweet soprano teenager suddenly changing to a contrabass being very threatening to walking through a otherwise toasty warm house and finding in the middle of a hallway an icy cold section of about six feet long. That is one of the evidences of demonic uh, activity there. To people yelling out in unknown languages attempting to pull all the hair out of my friend's head. Okay? So these people have told me these things, and I don't doubt them, and because satanic activity is real in this world, people do become possessed by demons. Uh, the believer cannot be possessed by a demon because we are already possessed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Nothing can inter- interfere with that, with us belonging to the Lord and His filling us. Now this type of over-satanic opposition to the gospel, most people um, know how to deal with. Now, now, we don't go search it out, but we know Scripture teaches very clearly. Those things can only be overcome by the name and power of Jesus. If you go off and try to handle it in your own strength, they'll beat the stuffing out of you, okay, spiritually speaking, and maybe even physically speaking. It is the name and power of Jesus Christ that overcomes Satan and nothing else, okay? Now, as I said, that type of regular, that type of what we consider satanic opposition will not be faced by most people, uh, although it is surprising who has come face to face with that. The type of opposition to the gospel that we come in contact with is much more along, along the lines of passive aggressive or apathetic aggressive opposition to the gospel. You might be excited about your faith, and you share it with one of your friends, and your friend gives you the response of, well, okay, that's great for you, but, you know, don't, don't, tell, me, don't tell me anything like that again. Or, I'm glad you have found what works for you. And it's not just what works for us. It's what works for everybody, because it is the truth. But they will passively say, I'm great, it works for you, just don't tell me anything about it or expect me to follow along in your path as well. Now, this type of opposition is, I think, a little bit more frustrating because we face it. And, you know, if somebody is possessed by a demon and 
The Lord comes along and zaps them. We see it plenty of times in Scripture. Jesus comes along and he says, I cast you out. And what happens? They're gone. The demon is gone in an instant. And that life is forever changed because they are then filled with the things of Christ. But the person who is passively aggressive in opposition to the gospel or apathetic in their opposition to the gospel, it takes time. It takes wearing that opposition down. It takes them basically being loved into the kingdom. Yes, when their heart changes, it changes in an instant. But the Lord is calling us to wear them down, in a sense, with the living out of the gospel of Christ before them and the sharing of it in a way that they can understand. We don't water down the gospel. We just do it in a way that they can understand because this is the truth. Well, no matter the opposition, the spread of the gospel can never be stopped. We know the gates of hell cannot prevail against the move of the church. It is empowered by Christ. It is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Nothing can stop it. That doesn't mean there won't be constant opposition to the things of the church. Opposition that is frustrating. Opposition that is dangerous. Opposition that is even personally costly to us. The only thing that I see that will ever hinder the move of the gospel um, is if we don't share it. Okay? Edmund Burke was credited with the statement. Um, you know the statement. I wrote it down. but I, uh, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. All that is necessary for the gospel not to go forward is that believers do nothing. Okay? But if you're a true believer, you can't not share what you believe. Okay? If your life has been completely changed, to go home and just to keep it to yourself, I, I question whether your life has been really changed. If you have an opportunity to share the gospel and you decline to do so, you and the Lord better have a serious talk. Okay? Now, you may think, I'm I, I just not good at it. I, I don't know what to say. What has the Lord done in your life? What Bible verse did you memorize in third grade that still sticks in your head? It better be 316, okay? At least that. Or your Sunday school teacher is in big trouble if you didn't memorize that one, okay? But you memorize that. Here's what the Lord has done to me. Here's what he calls us to do. That is sharing the gospel because you are proclaiming what is true. To not share what you know is like not giving an antidote that you have in your hand to somebody who is dying or walking down the street and seeing someone's house on fire and there they sit calmly in the living room and you're sitting outside saying, should I really tell them? Maybe they don't want to be bothered with that fire in their house. You have the means for them to escape the flames. Will you tell them or will you withhold that? But the means to escape the flames is only God's means. And it's on God's terms that it happens. God is not a build-your-own-sandwich type of God. It's not as if we can come to him and pick and choose those things that we want to believe in and those things that we want to accept and, and build our own God. He lays out who he is and what his character is like and what he calls us to do right here. We don't have to question, is he like this or is he like this? Read right here. This is the way he is. And he says, you cannot come and pick and choose from me. He did accommodate us once. 
And that was actually sending his son to give his life for us. That was the only accommodation God has made for us. Because we could not get to God on our own. We had offended him. Our sin is what separates us from him. It is our issue. And he has made the way for that issue to be handled. Now, the issue is handled in his way. We, we think, you know, couldn't, couldn't God come up with a different way? Did he have to give his, the life of his only son for us? And you might think to yourself, well, in your weaker moments, well, maybe I was worth it. No, how could you be worth the death of the Son of God who had no sin, who was all righteousness? And here you and I are all sin and no righteousness, and he comes and gives his life for us. That's God's accommodation. We must believe that that is the way he does it, and now he calls us to live according to his word. Faith cannot be purchased. It cannot be done piecemeal to please the individual. It is God's way. You are in or out. You are for him or against him. And as we read in Revelation 3, you are either hot or cold. If you're lukewarm, he will spit you out. And every parent understands what that Greek word means. Okay? Every parent who's been up all night with their sick child who has had projectile vomit. That's what it means to spit you out. I will projectile you out of my mouth. Let there be no doubt about what he means. Now, before we get into our main character here, Simon, let me just refresh our minds on Samaria. The Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews down in Jerusalem. They were the purebreds. The Samaritans were the half-breeds. They had kind of a different view of, of what the Lord was doing. So instead of the Davidic Messiah, the Samaritans were looking for the return of what was called the uh, Tahib, the Restorer. And they, they took it out of a, a, a passage in Deuteronomy. And the Samaritans looked forward to the coming of this individual uh, to herald the day the temple would be restored, not the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple in Gerizim, uh, and the sacrifices created again, and the pagans would, be, uh, would become believers. That's their theology. And the Jews down in Jerusalem thought these people were crazy, and you know, to the point where they wouldn't walk through their land. They would walk around Samaria, even though it took three extra days, uh, instead of going straight up through there. So the best, for the best part of a thousand years, there was this ethnic hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews in Jerusalem. And now you have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit in this section of the world and with this group of people that are anathema to the Jews down in Jerusalem. And understand... This was ingrained for a thousand years, and now these Jews become Christians, and, and it just didn't change overnight. I mean, their view to the, of the Samaritans did not change in an instant. Yes, their hearts were made new, but as perhaps you know, when you became a Christian, perhaps there was still bitterness in your life towards some people or some situations that it took you a long time to get over. Well, here's a thousand years of bitterness that they had to get over. So when they hear that the, that the Holy Spirit is coming upon those in Samaria, there are some questions. Okay, there are some questions, and we'll, we'll look at that in a moment. But you see in verse 8, this is what happens when the gospel is preached and people believe. Verse 8, and there was much rejoicing in that city. 
much rejoicing. The truth had finally come to the Samaritans, and their eyes were open, and what could they do but rejoice? And that's what they did. So on the heels of the martyrdom of Stephen, Saul, the young Pharisee, who was holding his coats, is charged with the persecution of this new body of, he believes, heretics, the church, Christianity. So he has received permission and actually goes house to house, finds believers, pulls them out, drags them off to prison. We see terrible things are done to believers in the first century. But rather than stopping the spread of the gospel, what happens? People flee from Jerusalem. Where do they go? They go to Judea and Samaria and beginning to the ends of the earth. So the gospel, because of Saul's persecution, now goes up into Samaria. And, and here's a believer whose life has been changed, Philip, and he has been gifted with these, these things. And he goes up and he declares the things of Christ to these people who were formerly his enemies, formerly half-breeds, crazy people. But yet they need the gospel as well. They believed Philip. Look at verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. They believed their lives were being changed because the gospel was coming to them. Because it was a new area, the gospel was accompanied by the signs and wonders that Philip was doing. So here you have, instead of squelching the gospel and the spread of the kingdom, it facilitates the spread of the gospel. Now we read here, as I said, the Sumerians paid close attention. They came to believe. And, and you have to understand, this is a little bit cultural here. Go to verse 13. And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John up. You know, Philip's not an apostle. Okay, he wasn't one of the ones that was chosen by the Lord. And there is this thousand-year enmity that they've had, so they send up the big guns to check it out. And know what they find? It is real. Okay, these people believe. They have heard the gospel. They have believed what Philip has said, and they have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. All they need now is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, we'll address at a different time why these two things are are separated here, but we'll talk about that as we get later and later in Acts. So here they are baptized, they are professing believers, and they have received the Holy Spirit. Now let's go specifically to Simon. Simon is described by Luke as one who practices magical arts, and he has the entire region of Samaria in the palm of his hand. They see his stuff, and they are simply amazed at what he can do, astonished at his power. Now, whether he had satanic power to do miracles or just was a master magician, you know, they used to have those shows on where the... um, the special magician illusions revealed, and you could find the secrets of how, you know, where that person behind the curtain actually went, okay? So there is an illusion there. Well, it's either the power of Satan or it is an illusion. So it's not made clear what he was doing, but it was obviously that he was a tool of Satan. The Bible does indicate that God grants Satan the power to effect miracles, in some people through false prophets, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Matthew, Thessalonians, Revelation, those are all laid out for us. 
But a true prophet, when he does a miracle, will direct the glory to our Heavenly Father. He will encourage us for godly living. A false prophet will take the glory upon himself and will not encourage people towards godly living. Now, we should not fear to proclaim the gospel, even to those who are obviously involved in satanic activity, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing can stop its spread. So Simon is capitalizing on his attention, on his fame, almost this occultish following that he has. And he is praised as if he were an angelic or a supernatural being. They're just amazed at what Simon can do. They say, this is the power of God, as, as evidenced in his life. Now in Greek, we understand, up in... Uh, um, verse 10, it says, the great power of God. We understand in Greek that the word great and the word magic are the same word. Its translation is defined by its context. So Simon thinks he is Simon the Great, and everybody else thinks he is Simon the Magician. Okay, So we see that, that divergence there. Well, so Simon calls himself great. In the early church tradition, Simon gets way more attention than what he gets in Scripture. Okay, way more attention. Justin Martyr says that Simon made a journey to Rome where he was worshipped as a god, and a statue was erected in his honor in Rome. Irenaeus, in his book Against Heresies, says that Simon is the father of all heresies. That would make him who? Satan. Okay. And his name gives rise in the English language to what word? Simony, it's probably not one that you use this week. Okay, it means to attempt to purchase an office. Um, uh, sometimes it is applied specifically to the church as an attempt to purchase a bishopric or something like that. Uh, or sometimes it can even be uh, applied to political office. Uh, who, the guy in Chicago, the mayor that attempted, you know, may have been charged with, in, in these terms, simony, attempt to purchase an office. So when Simon sees the techniques that are involved in gaining the Holy Spirit, he makes a request, and he brings some money to the apostles and wants to purchase the authority to grant the power of the Holy Spirit. Now what Simon is seeking is to purchase an office or to, even to purchase the grace of God, which we understand Grace is a free gift. It can't be purchased. It can't be earned. It is bestowed upon those whom the Lord chooses. And his attitude and request reflects traditional views within society, especially in pagan worship, that you could purchase your position in a pagan uh, idolatrous place, that you could become the high priest if you paid enough to do so. But to pay money for God's power violates the very nature of of God's sovereign grace. He bestows it where he wills, not where we want. But it is worse yet. It is evidence that he is still under the, the grasp and the authority of Satan's power. And Peter declares to Simon, look at verse 20. The, the New American Standard, or probably whatever translation you have, really cleans it up. Verse 20, but Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you. The Greek is literally, may you and your silver go to hell. That's literally what the Greek says. And so you can see that Peter has no expectation that Simon has gotten his stuff together or that he is actually a believer. 
You want to come and purchase the grace of God? You want to come and purchase the power of God? That means you really do not understand who our Heavenly Father is. So what do we make of this when we apply it to, to our lives, apply it to the church today? Well, Simon is an example of what the Reformers and the Puritans and even the Westminster divines call a temporary faith or a false professor. Now, in places in the New Testament, we see the people who believe only in an outward sense. Simon believed as far as Philip was concerned. Simon believed as far as the Samaritans were concerned, but he did not believe as far as Christ was concerned. Now, I do not believe it is possible for a true, genuine believer to ever fall away from grace. Yeah, we'll we'll hit a hiccup. We'll get in trouble now and then. But we can't fall out of grace because it is God who has done the saving. So we are secured for all eternity. I believe it is possible for those people to make a false profession of faith. It looks like a duck and it smells like a duck and it quacks like a duck, but it may not be a duck. Okay? It looks like a believer, it smells like a believer, but it may not be. This is what takes place in several places in the New Testament. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present evil world, Paul writes. There are also other places and people listed in the New Testament. Hymenaeus, Philetus, who made professions of faith, but apparently abandoned that. I have plenty of friends over the years that I have seen come to Christ, and they give no evidence of faith now. The great thing is I'm not the one that determines that. That is Christ's business. It is not our job to look at our neighbor and go, are you really saved? I mean, I know I'm really saved, but is your profession true or is it false? That's the business of Jesus Christ because he's the one that does the saving. Okay? Our job is to proclaim the things of Christ and let him work through us. Now, I'm reading, again, it's one of those books that I read every so many years, Pilgrim's Progress. Okay? John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And before Christian loses his burden, this burden that he has been carrying on this journey through all these different places, he comes to the house of interpreter. An interpreter is going to interpret the dreams and the vision that Christian has had. And there are seven things that he has seen in this vision, and one of those things is a man in an iron cage who once made a profession of faith but has failed to persevere. His profession was only outward. It was only an exterior profession of faith. And it's like Hebrews 6 says, he has tasted the good things of God, but he has not really believed the good things of God. In the end, this man in the iron cage was not saved. It appears Simon the magician is also incapable of repenting here for some reason. Look at uh, 22. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven. If, if an apostle came to you today and said, pray and repent, I would hope that you would fall to your knees at that moment and pray. But what does Simon say? But Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me yourselves. Okay, why don't you pray for me? See, that's, that's not the way that it works. If you've been... If you've come face to face with your own sin, the Lord calls you to repent. He doesn't call me to repent for you. He calls you to repent and to go to your knees and to seek his mercy and his grace. It's a various, very serious thing that it would be possible to make a false profession of faith and that that profession would not be genuine. 
and when it is tested that it would not meet the standard according to Christ. A heart that has been broken, a heart that has been changed, a heart that has been made new in the things of Christ. You'll notice also that Simon was one of the people that was baptized. Now, in, in the circles that I deal with, you know, we all have our professional circles. There is a discussion in the Reformed theological circles right now by a small minority of Reformed theologians and Reformed pastors. Not just a minority, but a small minority. And their contention, let me, let me apply it today, their contention is that Audrey's salvation is now forever secure because she has been baptized. But that's not what we find in Scripture. We find plenty of people who are baptized whose salvation is not secure. Okay? We baptize Audrey as a sign and seal of inclusion within the covenant family of God. That's what Westminster says. Okay? We pray in all earnestness and, 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 and out of this great longing that she will come to faith, that Jesus Christ will open her eyes to the truth and she will be saved. Baptism is not a saving ordinance. The Lord's Supper is not a saving ordinance. Just because you're going to take the Lord's Supper today does not mean you're going to heaven. You'll go to heaven because of the work of Christ. You don't go to heaven by singing in the choir. You go to, work, you go to heaven by the work of Christ. You don't go to heaven because your parents were godly. You go to heaven because of the work of Christ and your life, and your life has changed. And that's the only thing that gets you there. This is just an exterior thing that the Lord commands us to do. It is the interior work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that changes someone and secures their salvation for all eternity. Opposition to the gospel will come in many forms. False professors, those who seek false doctrines. The challenge for us is to say, what is my profession of faith? If I profess Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, is my life changed? Is this what I want to chase after, the things of Christ? Now, what do I hold as true? Are they based in Scripture? Or am I making the things up about God so he fits my desire of what he should be like over against how he describes himself? Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be a false professor. We don't want to say things that aren't true just because we're caught up in the moment or because other people around us have, have said that they believe, so we jump on the bandwagon. We want to know Christ. We want to know his forgiveness. We want to know that in a real and tangible way in our hearts. We want to rejoice in the promises that you have made to us, that once we are in your hand, we can never be taken. We are for all eternity secure because you have saved us. And it is not a work of our own hands. Fix this in our minds and hearts, Lord, that we would begin with our own lives. What do we believe? Do I believe Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior? Have I repented of my sin, asked for forgiveness, and sought him. And what do I believe about these things? Are they of my own making? Or are they rooted and based in the teachings of your word? Come upon us, Lord, that we might be secure in your work. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.